Before you listen to this great episode of Partner with Survivor, we'd just like to tell you about a powerful new practice tool the Safe and Together Institute has launched. Our perpetrator pattern mapping tool has been available for 10 years, but now it's available for the first time in a web-based version. What it does is really help you map perpetrators' patterns of behavior onto child family functioning, talk about its intersections with mental health, substance abuse, and other issues, address intersectionalities, worker safety, all in an easy-to-use online package that protects the confidentiality of your information and lets you wrap it all up in a neat little package, basically, to print it out and to kind of document all those different pieces of information. This is a tool that can be used by both survivors and practitioners. And for the very first time, it's available immediately online without any other prior training. The training is embedded in this powerful practice tool so that teams uh, that have not been trained in Safe and Together can immediately begin mapping in an effective way. That's right. It's like having a safe and together coat in your back pocket is what I like to say. There you go. So we really encourage you to go to our virtual academy, academy.safetytotherinstitute.com. Check it out. You know, you can subscribe to it immediately or you can check out a free demo version for 30 days. So please reach out to us and try this new tool. Now enjoy this great episode of Partner with Survivor. We're back. We're back. So welcome to Partner with a Survivor. And I, I'm Ruth Stearns Mandel. <laughs> and I'm David Mandel. And I feel like we haven't done this in forever. So I feel like I'm a little bit out of practice. We'll get right back on the basic. Okay. Okay. So I'm the Executive Director of the Safe and Together Institute. And I'm the Strategic Relationship E-Learning and Communications Manager. And I don't know if you officially had that title fully last time we did the show, but it is it is official. It is. And it's uh, people should write her and ask her what the strategic relationships part of the <laughs> title means, because it's actually a very important part of what, what she does. Yes. So um, so this podcast, Partner with a Survivor, you know, going back to the beginning, so people understand was Ruth's idea. And it was a way for her and I to extend our conversations about my experience as a professional and her experiences as, as a survivor. But above and beyond that, Safe and Together Institute's one of their principles and components is partnering with survivors. And that concept really works its way through everything that we do, that the outcomes, the practices for populations, which are survivors need to be grounded in survivors experiences and professionals need to hear that and listen to that even when it's hard. So in a minute, we're going to talk about, um, we're going to do an interview, not talk about, we're going to talk with Dr. Emma Katz. But before I introduce her, I just want to say that um, we've been getting a lot of feedback from folks about um, listening to this show and how they're using it. Yeah. You know, and just yesterday, somebody was talking to me about how they're listening to the show on how being uh, trauma-informed is not the same thing as being domestic violence-informed. Mm -hmm. And so just want to encourage people, you know, that are professionals out there to, to use the show for supervision, for group supervision, for discussions. Mm -hmm. We're hearing people using them for um, continuing education. Yeah. Uh, and so um, we're really pleased that we regularly now, once, twice, three times a week, will be on other calls when people will reference how they were listening to the show and, and how it impacted them. So we're, we're real excited about that. 
And we're really excited about this interview. I, I'm actually super excited. I, and I say super excited a lot, I realize, but I am. <laughs> and um, and I'm, I'm, we're going to be talking with Dr. Emma Katz around course of control and children. And course of control has been at the center of the Safety Together model for 15 years. And we're a child-centered model. So this is right in our wheelhouse. And um, so let me introduce her. And, uh, and then we'll start the conversation. So uh, Dr. Emma Katz is a leading research specialist in the harms caused by perpetrators to mothers and children in the context of domestic abuse. She's a senior lecturer in childhood and youth at Liverpool Hope University and has won multiple awards for her research, including the Corinna Seath Prize awarded by Women Against Violence Europe in 2016. Uh, Emma has also written for the academic journal Child Abuse Review and her most recent article, When Coercive Control Continues to Harm Children, Post-Separation Fathering, Stalking and Domestic Violence is now available to read and download, as is her 2016 article, Beyond the Physical Incident Model, How Children Living with Domestic Violence are Harmed by and Resist Regimes of Coercive Control, uh, which is also published in Child Abuse and Review. Uh, and it's one of their most viewed articles to date, actually, which is which is no surprise. And now, probably most excitingly, um, we were just chatting before the the we we started the uh, recording that coming out in early 2022, fingers crossed, is um, Dr. Katz's book titled "Course Control in Children's and Mothers' Lives," which is going to be published by Oxford University Press. So, so Emma, thank you for joining us. Thanks, and, David. Thanks, David. You know, and you've already keynoted one of our conferences, so you're not a newcomer to the Safe and Together space, so, but we're really excited to welcome you to partner with Survivor. And um, I'm going to just jump right in there because for anybody familiar with the domestic violence field and, and, and the children in domestic violence knows there's tons of writing out there about domestic violence and kids, you know, and about yeah. the harm domestic violence. Uh, has done to children, but your work is actually unique. And I really believe that, that, that you're really adding something to the field. And um, by talking about course control and how it relates to both mothers' lives and children's lives. And, and so I'd like you to talk about, um, you know, what's so groundbreaking about, about this work that you've been doing. Sure. Well, I remember reading Evan Stark's book, um, uh, coercive control how how men interact women in personal life um a while ago and thinking this is so brilliant um but what about children um the mums are living under this awful awful coercive control that the perpetrator is doing day in day out it's it's affecting every area of her life what about any children who are in the home what are they living with what does their daily life look like and so much of the children and domestic violence literature talks about how children are harmed by being exposed to witnessing or knowing about the physical violence between the parents. And I thought that was a really limited way of looking at it because where there's coercive control, the perpetrator won't just be using physical violence. They will be using emotional abuse, manipulation. They will be using economic abuse, depriving their targets of, of money and economic resources and assets. Um, they will um, probably be 
being sexually coercive and they will be continually monitoring and conducting surveillance on their targets to see whether they are complying. They will be punishing them for any small act of resistance that they think they're detecting. So they're doing so much more than being physically violent. Indeed, some coercive control perpetrators use very little or even no physical violence at all, because if they can get what they want from you, which is your total obedience to them without being physically violent, then that is probably a safer bet for them because it's less likely that they'll ever be picked up for the abusers that they are because they haven't caused a bruise, they haven't broken an arm. Everyone will struggle more to to figure out what it is they're doing. So for children, I thought it doesn't make sense to talk about them being exposed to this because it really is so much more than exposure. So I I interviewed with with mums and children who'd who'd been through this um, and got come out the other side and were separated from perpetrators. And what I found was that everything that the perp was doing to the mum was also happening to the children. So if um, and I'll, I'll just say here that we think that in about 90 to 95 percent of, of cases, the coercive control perpetrator is the man in the family. Um, it's much rarer that it's the woman, but it does sometimes happen that it is the woman. But because it's 90, 95 percent of the time, the man, I'll, I'll be talking about, you know, the man is the perpetrator here. But that's not to suggest that it can't happen the other way around. Sometimes it does. But yeah, so whatever what I found in my research was that. Whatever the dad was doing to the mum, it was also affecting the children's lives. So if dad wouldn't let mum go out much, if he'd taken away her car, if he insisted that that she she could only go to the shops for 10 minutes and then she had to be home, if he insisted that she had to be back by four o'clock and then she couldn't leave the house after four, what do you think that was doing to the kids' lives? She couldn't take them out because she wasn't allowed out. They couldn't do the extracurricular activities after school because they finished at 5.30 and she wasn't allowed out after four. So she couldn't take them to to their friends' birthday parties because if she did, um, the dad would, would accuse her relentlessly of having an affair with one of the other dads of one of the other kids at the friend's birthday party. The kids couldn't have their friends around to their own house because dad might kick off in in the words of one of my interviewees. So that was out the question. Dad was too unpredictable for that. So the kids were living in the very same isolated and lonely world as their mum as a direct result of, of the father's coercive control. And it seemed to me that the father either was doing this on purpose and wanted to coercively control the children as well as the mother and really that was part of his agenda or he was mostly interested in controlling the mum but he really didn't didn't have any any reservations or concerns about the impacts that this was having on the children at all um there's there's a really good quote by by a brilliant coercive control researcher Jane Monkton Smith who wrote this fantastic book called In Control um, that's come out recently and she says that coercive controlling behavior is a campaign and like most campaigns it has a purpose and a plan. The perpetrator's plan to control their targets is often rigid and takes priority over anything and everything and I think that when it comes to children That's the case with children. Their plan to control their target, who's usually their girlfriend or wife, takes priority over anything and everything. And that will include the safety, well-being and health of their children, which they will be spectacularly unconcerned by 
um, because what they're fixated on is controlling their target. So, yeah, I, I looked at how how the kids were experiencing this. And of course, it was causing them a lot of distress. They were socially isolated. They were missing out on so many good opportunities to build their confidence, you know, to have fun, to really explore life. Um, and that I mean, and that's just the example around how the isolation affected them. I could talk to you for the next three hours about how they were affected by every aspect of what the perpetrator was doing, but I won't. So, yeah, I think that's that's one way that my research is really unique is that I really wanted to look at how this was affecting the child's life um, and get away from this concept of exposure and, and see children really as co-victims of what the perpetrator is doing, not witnesses not secondary victims but co-victims because their life was being directly affected and i think that's a it's a really accurate portrayal i think one of the things though that i have a question about because when we speak about coercive control we almost speak about it in in really clear terms but the behaviors of coercive control can hide behind um excuses such as um, you know, you have a disability and I'm controlling your life because I'm concerned about your disability, but it's truly being a con- coercively controlling human. Or, you know, we're part of a cultural belief system that believes that, you know, this is my right, this is my entitlement. So how do you kind of poke behind and talk about those ways that people hide their coercive control, particularly in the context of children, especially when coercive control can be framed as the rights of parents, um, you know, cultural rights, men's rights, religious rights. And in fact, here in the United States recently, there was a bill passed down in Georgia um, that was focused on, um, on child abuse, but they actually wrote an exemption in for religious rights, which is really, really interesting. So mm. how do you kind of go behind uh, the sort of big broad bucket of coercive control and go into the behaviors that really kind of hide that as excuses um, that say that it's something else? Yeah, absolutely. So I think what defines coercive control um, as a really harmful form of abuse is that the perpetrator has established what we call a credible threat over their target. And that means that they've established that if their target does X, Y, Z, they will be punished. And it might be um, it might be a physical punishment such as being beaten, or it might be that it might be a verbal punishment such as being ripped into verbally for half an hour and told how stupid and fat and ugly and useless you are and good for nothing and a piece of trash and until you're crying and crying and crying. Or it might be that the perpetrator will harm the pet in the family or or will go and 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 do something horrible to your mother or something. But whatever they choose as the punishment, they know it is something that is going to really upset you, that's gonna that you're going to dread and that you'll do almost anything to avoid. So they establish that there's this credible threat that, that if you disobey them, there will be this really vile punishment. And so you start to change all your behavior to try and avoid that punishment. And you you are not behaving the way that uh, 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 that an average person in your society has the freedom to behave. So, um, for example, the perpetrator will will make it clear that they want to control 
a lot of aspects of your life, where you can go, who you can talk to, how long you can spend in a particular place, um, and you know how you can appear, what opinions you can express, what feelings you're allowed to have. And, and so it's a really heavy, heavy, heavy form of control. It goes way beyond what we might call ordinary parental control, which you know should be balanced with, with allowing the child independence um, obviously, for children, we we start off, you know, having to to control them quite a bit when they're really little. But then the older they get, the more independence they need because they're growing towards being fully in control of their life. So if we treated a 16 year old the way we treated a six year old, how is that then? How is that 16 year old going to cope when they turn 18 and are they suddenly supposed to resume, you know, to start being an adult with no practice? So childhood is all about the parent guiding the child towards increasing independence and whatever you know control we had over them when they were extremely little you know we gradually let go of and let them take the reins perpetrators will very often cloak their behavior as you say with excuses and they're really good at picking the excuses that are that people are going to believe and people are going to buy into so if it's a male perpetrator and and they're trying to excuse their behavior towards their their wife they'll they'll pick on all the sort of common stereotypes around wives the kind of sexist stereotypes in society because they know people will believe what they're saying so they'll say you know I didn't really do anything that bad but you know what I did was because she was nagging me she was nagging me she was pushing my button she was provoking me and these are stereotypes we have around women and women's behavior they're they're sexist stereotypes and the perpetrator knows it will work so they, they'll use them. The same with kids, you know, they will say that the child is, perhaps if the child has, has, has revealed a bit about what's going on, they'll, they'll draw on stereotypes around children. So they'll say the child is a fantasist. They can't tell fantasy from reality. They make up stories. They're a liar. They're an exaggerator. They're living in a dream world. You know, these are all stereotypes we have about children, that they're unreliable. Or if it's a teenager, they'll say that they're rebellious, out of control, hormonal, hysterical, moody, going through a phase. Again, these are all stereotypes that we we have about teenagers. And it's so easy for the perpetrator to pass off what they're doing and the response their target is having using those stereotypes. So whenever you hear those stereotypes, just beware that they might be being used for some very, very yeah. sinister reasons. Yeah. And I think too, just landing it in practice, when you hear those stereotypes as professionals, you really need to ask the next question. Well, what mm. does that mean? What does that look like? What mm. are those behaviors? And then really assessing those behaviors is incredibly important. So I want to go back to um, something you said right when you were explaining why the work you're doing is so groundbreaking and, and explore a little bit. The, you, you referenced kind of the common language, children exposed to domestic violence or child witnesses to domestic violence, which are the two common phrases that have been used for decades to describe yeah. the nexus of kids' experience. And, and the two things I always say about that is, is the perpetrator's invisible in those phrases, right? It, this is like passive statements. And it yeah. really focuses on this, this witnessing, seeing, being in the room nexus, which, which connects up and, and may have grown out of, I actually don't know, which is this idea of, 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 of a, a trauma focus and right. a focus that is in many ways, very mental health oriented and very physical mm. violence oriented. And you said something that's very much in alignment with what we do with safe and together. You know, we'll talk about multiple pathways to harm. We'll talk about 
um, family ecology, their change, you know, all these different things for, for kids. And you said something really simple that I want to underscore, which is how the course control changes the day-to-day life of the child. Yeah. And, and it's so central to what I think of as domestic violence and informed work um, to really approach it in that, I don't want to say non-clinical. I don't want to dismiss the clinical diagnosis. I, I want to be additive. I want to be like, and, and we, we, we must include that really basic, how is the children, the child's life different? And, and can Absolutely, you, yeah. and can you talk about what you learned, you know, what, did that awareness for you come from say from Evan's work or did it come from you from listening to the stories of the survivors, you know, how did you kind of end up landing there in that? Because the research is so much, when you look at the research, part of it is so clinical, the diagnosis, kids have depression, mom has depression. We have correlates of mom's depression with kids' depression. And there's almost finger pointing actually at moms and say, well, mom's oh, depressed. Right. One thing that drives me nuts is that we, we as soon as we start talking about the parents, we're not talking about the parents, we're talking about the mum as though she is the only parent. And then we we start saying, well, mum's been negative, mum has been negatively affected by the abuse. The abuse is just said in this really passive way as though it's just happening spontaneously, like some sort of hurricane <laughs> passing through rather than by dad's abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, mum's being affected by the abuse and and her mental health's bad. So therefore she's not parenting the kids very well. Therefore their mental health's bad. But that happens in so much of the research that we do. And, and that always, oh, that always gets me quite annoyed. So what about the parenting of the perpetrator? What is their parenting like? I mean, to what extent do these perpetrators believe that they have the right to control every aspect of the child's life? To what extent do they have empathy for the child? To what extent do they view the child as their own object? And how is all that affecting the child's emotional health and well-being? Because to have a parent who views you as an owned object and has no empathy for you, I think that that is, you know, intuitively we can see that that would be very damaging for a child. And yet those questions are so rarely asked. There's so few studies looking at how the parenting of the perpetrator is affecting the child. Mm-hmm. And, and I and and for me, I mean, the answer to that is is um in some ways super simple, which is we have such low expectations for men as parents, and we don't hold them to the same expectations. So yeah. we we that's how we end up with both in the research and in the practice a very uh, mum blaming thinking and 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 approaches. And so so you know it's it's mm. it's, it's it's so great to hear and refreshing to hear you talk about how perpetrators are changing the daily lives. Because that's a, you can almost yeah. ask that question clinically or diagnostically in child safety, right? You could just say, mm-hmm. sitting down, you're listening to a story around a course control domestic violence. And, and the next question could be, okay, how did the domestic violence perpetrator's behavior change the children's daily life? Mm-hmm. Just by asking that yeah. question is groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, to, you know, I'm not quite sure how I ended up thinking in that way. I know that I just had an an instinctive understanding that that was an important question. I couldn't quite tell you where it came from, but um, I but I can tell you how I got the information. I added a question to my interviews, which I think was the crucial question. Um, I when I was talking to my interviewees about what they'd been through, I said to them, "Were there things that you that you felt you couldn't do, or you felt you had to do because of how the perpetrator would react?" And that usually 
got them talking for the next 30 minutes about all the ways they were coercively controlled. Right. So I would really recommend that question to, to practitioners. Uh, it's a very good question. Mm. Um, and what they were talking about had very little to do with the physical violence. There might have been physical violence as well. There might not have been. But there were so many ways their daily life was limited and constrained and changed by the credible threat the perpetrator had established. If you do this, mm. I will punish you. Yeah. And such a tremendous amount of anxiety that's produced in yeah. that cycle as well. It doesn't even have to be physical. It can just be that that tight control and the, the high levels of emotional punishment that really can deeply impact a child's well-being and development and create anxiety, create depression and create mental health disorders in them mm. during that really critical neuroplastic time where mm. their brain development is happening. Um, so. You've studied a lot about post-separation coercive control. Um, and at the Safe and Together Institute, we've been doing a lot of work with family courts around custody and access. Can you share some of your learnings from post-separation research on coercive control on children? Absolutely. So um, just to go back to that, that quote from, from Jane Monkton Smith, the perpetrator has a plan and it is a, often a rigid plan. Um, it's they're fixated and their plan takes priority over anything and everything. So if you tell somebody like that, I don't want to be with you anymore. Let's split up. They're not going to take that as a, you know, they're not going to respect your wishes. They never respected your wishes before. What, they're not going to start now. What they're going to do is carry on. And indeed, you have challenged their control, the control they've probably been working for years to establish and keep over you. They're challenging their control. You're, say, you're saying to them, I'm not going to be controlled by you anymore. So they will redouble their efforts to either get control of you again or to demonstrate that they still have control over you or to punish you like crazy for daring to break their control, daring to challenge them. So we often see that the perpetrator's abusiveness really escalates around the time of leaving. We know this is the most dangerous time. It's the time when if they're going to turn, if they're going to resort to murdering their, their adult victim, their kids, or perhaps killing themselves, you know, if but if death is going to come into the picture, it will often be at that point. Um, it's a really high risk time. And one of the key ways that perpetrators can stay in the life of, of the people they've been abusing is, is by demanding access to their children, um, ongoing access to their children. And often they've shown very little interest in their children before this point. Um, they might have, have been hostile towards them nearly all the time or ignored them most of the time, seen them as inconveniences and nuisances. But now they really want to see them. They're saying they really want to see them because it's a means of getting control. Or they might have been very interested in their children, but in an unhealthy way where they view the child as an owned object and there to meet their needs rather than them as the parent being there to meet the child's needs. So um what with a coercive controller because they they have so little empathy for for the people in their household whatever their previous relationship with the child was like it's there's going to be a heavy heavy dose of unhealthiness in there at a minimum if not outright abusiveness in in a lot of cases so um yeah they from the child's point of view then the children who i interviewed described some really scary behaviors post separation from their dads they described how dad could come to the front door and bang on it and that they had to hide and you know they were hiding in the corner they were scared for their lives 
They described dad stalking them. They described how they couldn't go to places in the community for fear that dad would would pop up and be there and perhaps kidnap them. Um, they, They described how after even after five or 10 years of separation, because dad still kept up low level stalking of them, where, you know, sometimes he would stalk them just to remind them that they weren't free and he was still there. Um, that they were afraid to go to their dance class. They were afraid to to go to their football match or, or whatever it was um, because dad might appear. Um, they talked about how they had to uproot everything and leave. Um, and indeed, there, there's a great quote by by a, a woman here in the UK called Viona Bruce, who presents, who used to present this programme called Crime Watch. And she said, domestic violence is the only crime where we expect the victim to go on the run rather than the perpetrator. And so often that's what we expect. Um, And so children have had to um, flee to a new community, leave behind their friends. Perhaps, you know, they've had to severely restrict their their, what they can say on the Internet um, because the perpetrator will be monitoring to see if they can find out where they are, you know, by looking at uh, online activity. So they they can't be open about their lives online, which is so terribly important to to children often and young people often nowadays. and then, of course, if, if the perpetrator is dragging mum through expensive um, legal processes, that will drain mum's financial resources and the children will then be plunged into poverty with her. So there's so many ways it, it neg- post-separation abuse negatively affects them. We also we often see perpetrators using children during contact visits in a very manipulative sort of way. Um, you know, make, uh, there's one example. Um, of a a 14-year-old girl I interviewed who described how her dad had behaved on contact visits when her and her sister were court ordered to visit dad and she said that when I would go to see dad he would tell us how it it was all mum's fault and how he couldn't see us because of mum and the family had split up because of mum and also because of them he blamed them as well and he would just go on and on and on about it and she said I felt sick and I felt small and I felt bad And she was just being reduced to an awful emotional state on these visits. But then he would also say to her, I'm depressed because I can't see you often enough. He would say to to her and and her sister, you're the only ones who love me. So as awful as the visits were, they, they kept being obligated to go back because dad had made them feel emotionally responsible for him. They were like five, six, seven, eight years old at this time. And so they had to go back no matter how painful it was to them. And of course, it was court ordered, so they couldn't really get out of it anyway. And this just happened every week. And um, they would see that on Monday, on, on over the weekend. And then by Monday, they were so ill and so drained from it that that the, the girl I was interviewed, she said, my sister would just be on the sofa crying and crying and crying and couldn't even go to school. Mm. And that was happening every weekend for them. And that's what the, the court system had decided was best for them because mm. they decided that this dad was an appropriate parent. They not properly evaluated his parenting. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a it's a real, real concern. And it's it's not over when there's separation. These perpetrators really do not stop until something stops them until you really put a roadblock up to stop their abuse you really make it impossible for them to carry on then they usually carry on yeah of course sometimes we see that they stop with their current victims 
because they found a new one and Mm -hmm. and so often in my research the mums and the children said he finally left us alone but it's because he had a new girlfriend he'd fathered new children and he was now focusing on them which is not good in the long term at all yeah now historically acts of resistance to coercive controllers particularly on the part of women has been really demonized in the system and women have gone to jail for those acts of resistance. They've had their children removed for those acts of resistance. How has the system responded to children's acts of resistance to coercive controllers classically? Mm, um, I mean, I can't speak to my own research on that because um, the children really haven't attempted to fight the system themselves and just the ones that I spoke to but I only spoke with 15 families but we do see all the time in other people's research it's it's a really well-known phenomenon from various other people's research that that if children for example say to the family court I don't want to see um my parent usually that it's my dad but not always they say I don't want to see my dad I'm terrified of my dad my dad's abused me my dad's hurt me my dad's been violent towards me my dad has perhaps sexually abused me and we think that it's hard to know the precise figures but we think that that in these sorts of domestic violence cases that perpetrators are sexually abusive of the children in maybe five or ten percent of the cases so you will get a lot of of cases of that cropping up in the family court and the children uh, is well known that sometimes children will attempt to say this to the court um and and they will be told you have to see your father. It's in your best interests. Um, you will be damaged by not seeing your father. Um, they're, they're told, um, we don't believe that you were abused. Your accusations of abuse are not credible. Your mother's coached you to say this. She, you know, the mother is made out to be a spiteful, manipulative, you know, um, expletive word. Um, and you know, again, drawing on the stereotype that women are more vindictive than men, which I'm not sure there's any empirical evidence for, but it's it's kind of believed culturally. Um, and so, yeah, uh, very often children are sent into contact visits with with abusive parents, kicking and screaming, terrified, traumatized, you know, literally kicking, screaming, crying. And, and if they continue to resist, sometimes the courts will even transfer them full time into the custody of the perpetrator to put a stop to their resistance which is the most horrifying response and I cannot even begin to imagine the trauma that that then goes on to cause. Yeah we have quite quite a few cases here in the United States where teenage children which is you know there's a level of uh, respect for teenage children's wishes for who they want to live with, um, saying mm-hmm. to a judge, I don't want to have contact with this parent. This parent has been abusive to me. And the judge putting them under arrest in a juvenile detention center until they comply yes. with the order. So really traumatizing responses by the system. It's, and it's just coercion all over again. You yeah. know, the perpetrator taught them you have to obey or you'll be punished. And then the court literally makes them obey or puts them in jail. Yes. It's, um, you know, this story is told all over the place. You're just referenced, Ruth, you know, the United States, but, you know, Emma, you're, you're connecting this to UK experience and then Australia, where we're doing a lot of work in the space. It's the same story in Canada, same stories. And I think probably many places in the world. So one observation and then another question. And, and so again, I, I, I'm on this kick today about the, the changing the lives of the kids and, and, 
I want our listeners to really hear the part where you said a, a few minutes ago, afraid of moving around in public, afraid mm-hmm. of going to the public space, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 you know, the, the football match, the, you know, to be out on the street, you know, that, that mm-hmm. place, that public spaces become scary or other places that should feel safer aren't. And, and I think, again, I'm, I've got this, this metaphor in my mind going about positive and negative and, and sort of people are very focused on the, the positive evidence of abuse, the physical violence, Mm -hmm. and they're not as focused on the negative evidence, which is the lack, the missing. And this is what Luke and Ryan Hart talk about as well. You know, that, that sort of, I I don't move into a space that's really mine. I don't do the things that I have a right to. And again, that's Evan Stark really talked about. This as a Liberty Mm -hmm. crime or a a human rights crime. And I think uh, this framework that you're talking about that we share really about the impact on what people have a right to do, freedom to associate, the freedom to an education, to, to stable yeah. housing, to right. to relationships or homes that are healthy and nurturing. If you use the UN you know, charter and the rights of children, it's a really actually good mm. touchstone to sort of mm-hmm. overlay on this and say, wait a second. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really have to interject that that people working against, I, you know, acknowledging this framework of coercive control and how it impacts children really despise the UN charter and the right of, ch- well, rights you're, of children, you're, you're, you're right. you know, there's, there's yeah. a correlation there. Um, but, you know, truly that it, it is one of those things about negating the things that you don't see. Emma did talk about how the unpredictability of those perpetrators becomes an embarrassment and right. a piece mm. of shame for children. If you're in a yeah. public space and your parent pops off in that way or threatens you physically or demeans you in front of other people, mm. you really start to withdraw from wanting to have complicated interactions and doing things that are fun because mm. you're you can't trust that the person that you're with is not going to make that interaction into a really painful and demeaning thing. And so, yes, it, you you, you got to look at what people are unwilling to do. Are they afraid to have friends over to the house? Are they declining invitations because particularly with both parents, with the partner that may be abusive, because that person can't be trusted in that public space to behave themselves in a way that's not going to cause alarm, discomfort, shame, embarrassment, demeaning, danger. So it's important to us. Absolutely. Yeah. And some perpetrators, though, are incredibly clever and manipulative, and they will never show to the public how abusive they are. So they will be charming in company. They will be funny. They they will be seen as one of the best dads in the neighborhood. You know, they'll be seen as an outstanding person. Um, you know, they might they might do a great deal of charity work and volunteering work. They'll be seen as funny, smart, um, caring, generous, a great person to be around, the guy you want to all your parties. Um, sometimes, sometimes that's the case. And then of course, when survivors speak up, nobody will believe them, which is precisely mm-hmm. why the perpetrator has carefully cultivated this image. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody will believe them. No, Nobody will take their side, except perhaps one or two extremely wise people, but, but even then possibly not. Mm-hmm. So yeah, sometimes perpetrators, it's quite obvious that, that something's the matter with their behavior, but some of them are so clever, so manipulative. They have such a good mask on that you, you just wouldn't know unless mm-hmm. you were their family member. 
Mm-hmm. So off of that, just uh, one more question specifically around the post-separation course of control. Um, in in the um, work we're doing with family court, I underscored for for them that money and children, you know, are this such a powerful tool of control, especially post-separation. Mm. Um, did you hear from your subjects, you know, participants in the in the studies the, that you did that the ways that their partners tried to use or extend their course of control through family court or through child safety. Did you get specific examples of that in your interviews? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I say, there's, there was the perpetrator who who was using his, his contact visits to make his daughters feel just wretched. Um, and that was a, a really good way of keeping control of the daughters and of upsetting the mother the mother had repartnered and and so was kind of beyond his clutches but you know a really good way to punish the mother was by upsetting the daughters for the next 10 years so that's what he was doing um but uh, yeah i mean beyond that there there were several other examples of of it so in one family um the court had um ordered twice weekly contact with the perpetrator and mum described how when she had to take them to to his to his place she had panic attacks she was terrified because she knew that she had to go where he was so that was disturbing her mental health twice a week um or even four times because she had to drop them off and pick them up twice weekly and then while they were there he was he was filling their head with with how awful mum was um encouraging them to disrespect mum and was saying to them things like you're going to get shot and stabbed in the area your mum has taken you to because that's what happens in that area. You know, you should, you know, you should hate your mum for taking you there. Um, so then when they got home to mum, their behaviour was was incredibly disturbed. They were verbally attacking mum. Her 14-year-old son, who was taller than her, was was being quite physically aggressive with her. And this was all because of the distress and, and the manipulation and, and the abuse they got while at dad's. And this was happening twice a week. So they had no respite from it whatsoever. Um, because with that kind of frequency, you know, the moment that the kids had calmed down, they were off to see dad again. And they knew they were off to see dad again. So they probably never calmed down because they knew it was constant. And this father had got one daughter who was the one he'd always favoured. Quite often they perpetrators, they really need to, to make sure siblings don't bond together. So they will treat them quite differently from each other so that there's a lot of jealousy and resentment and dislike among the siblings. So they can't bond together because if they bond together, they're a threat to the perpetrator's control. So in this case, this family, he had one daughter who he'd always favoured. He'd been pretty overtly hostile to the other kids but with this daughter he'd taken her to her favorite sports he'd spent particular time with her he'd he'd shown her more attention and she was still living with him post-separation and she was saying she didn't want to live with mum and on the rare occasions that she 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 saw mum she was gathering surveillance on mum for dad she she had you know she was taking recordings on her phone he was there and sending these recordings off to children's social services to try and get her investigated as a bad mum, which she wasn't. Um, I couldn't see any sign that she was when I when I went to their home and interviewed them. She was under a great deal of stress, of course, because of what was happening, but she seemed like she was trying really hard as a mum. And uh, yeah, the daughter was was surveilling. Um, 
the the mum knew that anything she said to the daughter was just going straight back to the father so it was like she was acting as his agent in in the mum's home so the mum wanted to try and repair her relationship with this daughter but really had no chance of doing so she wouldn't have even known when where to start there wouldn't there's no opportunity because the daughter was very much in the father's clutches and again that that's something that that needs to be looked at um there were you know this there was a there was a clear history of abuse from this father the the children could describe their father's abusive behavior the motherhood called the police when the father had raped her and that was on file um, but he was considered a perfectly good father to have complete custody of this one daughter and and twice a week, weekly visits with the other siblings. Yeah. So not looking at the patterns of behavior and not mapping the perpetrator patterns <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah, it's really it's really, um, you know, I don't understand how people haven't solidified in their minds that normalizing that type of behavior is really feeding the cycle of violence that child believes that her father, who is a perpetrator, has a right and a rationale to do what he's doing. Yeah. Um, she, you know, so she's 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 really absorbing those messages that to her is Absolutely. Nor- normal relationship. And that's very dangerous for her, for her future. But yeah. also we can't minimize the impact to 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 male children as well. Yeah. To witnessing these type of behaviors and then having the court system, you know, mental health professionals, uh, child protection professionals say, no, this is just high conflict. This is just normal. You have to yeah. have contact with your parent. And then they're really absorbing that this is OK. So really, mm. the whole focus has to be on, well, my mom is saying it's not and she's she's really, you know, emotional about this. Therefore, she's crazy. Everybody's saying it's normal. Uh, Absolutely. So what, you know, the, really the systems themselves don't leave any room for understanding that we are really perpetuating the cycle of violence Absolutely. in our own communities. Yeah. And these ideas that we have in society that every parent is good for their child, no matter how abominably behaved they are, that is a really peculiar idea. I mean, if a child's teacher or sports coach was emotionally abusing them, physically beating them, raping them, we would not tell the child, you need to keep seeing this teacher or this sports coach, because obviously this person is doing them enormous harm. And yet, because they're the parent, we have this peculiar idea that somehow seeing that parent will do more good than harm, despite their absolutely atrocious behavior. Mm -hmm. And but being, you know, sharing DNA with somebody doesn't create a functioning, healthy relationship. And where parents are good for children is where there is a functioning, healthy relationship, not where there's abuse, abuse, abuse. So I, I, I wish that as a society we could become we could really become more aware of the harm that some parents can do their children. Um, and also, you know, these common phrases like blood is thicker than water. Oh, well, you only have one mother. You only have one father. You just have to put up with it and make it work. Mm-hmm. Those phrases, they just normalize this situation, which, as you just described, Ruth, is so destructive. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, of when I, I talk to people in training or in settings, they'll say, OK, you've got a parent who's um, violent, you know, and, and, and it's domestic violence, identified as domestic violence. And, and it's put in a different category, like you're saying, Emma. I said, what if I just said, um, how would you assess the safety of a child going to a, a, this person with a history of violence, a person with a history of violence? Or mm-hmm. we've got a, a, a rapist here 
how comfortable would you, you know, send your own child, send a child them. to the care of this person? What would you need to yeah. know about them? No, but, I'd really you, like to say to professionals, send your own child to see that person. Well, but I think Give that, unsupervised yeah. but, visits but, with but your own child. But if you drop the word person. out, and I use this example mm-hmm. the other day, the old social psychology experiments and where they would, um, on the street, they would reenact scenes. They, they used to do this stuff. They don't do it anymore. I think this kind of guerrilla theater, social um, psychology experiment. So it was it was a man and woman on the street, and um, she was being accosted by the man. And in one version, so the bystanders didn't know that this was not real. And again, I don't know mm-hmm. if you would do this today. And in one in one example, she says, "Get away from me! Leave me alone! Uh, I don't know you." That's mm-hmm. version one. And version two is. Um, uh, get away from me, leave me alone. I don't know why I ever married you. Right. And mm. and in scenario one, people jumped in. Yeah. In yeah. scenario two, people stayed away. Right, because we've created this container that says that violence within the context of relationships is normal, is natural, and is acceptable, which is all incredibly damaging for children and for society in general. Right. So absolutely. So the, the we got a couple more things we just want to pick your brain about. And one is just, you know, the, uh, the implications of this for clinicians. And and you, you saw from my earlier comment that I'm very interested in how um, mental health professionals formulate domestic abuse as a clinical issue and how they they're treaters. And, 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 and they're, it's particularly important to me, not only because of the quality of the work they do with families, but they're often providing opinions to child safety or to family court, right? So how they conceptualize what they're seeing and how they understand it. Do you have any thoughts about what all this means for folks, particularly working with kids? Um, if you're in a mental health setting or clinical setting, like what, what should they take away from your research? Um, gosh, well, I would say I've been, what springs to mind, I've been hearing a lot of examples recently of the problem of not naming the perpetrator and of using mutualizing language. So I would say whenever you write a report, name the perpetrator, identify which parent is the perpetrator. Don't say the parents have issues. Name the perpetrator, describe their behavior. Um, if a child is presenting with mental health difficulties, you know, ask them the question, are there things that that you feel you can't do or things you feel you have to do because of, of how one parent will react you know what about the other parent are they more reasonable or are they not um you know so dig into what has actually brought that child to that space I mean one of the young men I interviewed his father had treated him so violently and abusively all his life and when as a teen he was in mental health settings nobody picked up on this nobody asked him about it um and he was just treated as though he you know, he was a troubled teen as though he had problems. And the fact that his father was one of the most horrific abusers I've ever heard about was never even picked up in that setting. So, yeah, identify the perpetrator, name the perpetrator on every report, describe the perpetrator's behavior um, and, and just try and also describe what the what the other parent, if the try and find out what they are trying to do to protect that child and what they're trying to do that's in that child's best interests. And that might not be the things that are obvious to you because the, for the, the parent who's being abused alongside the child, that parent will have very limited options as to how they can protect the child. And a lot of the things that they would like to do, they can't do because the perpetrator won't let them. So 
but they will be trying to do all sorts of things to make the child's day better to to give them a nicer life not in all cases because not all adult victims are good parents but most of them in my experience are and they try really hard to make the child's life better so try and identify the protective behaviors of of the victim survivor parent alongside naming the perpetrator i would say that's that's so important and not to decontextualize the kids' mental health or their issues from the perpetrator's behavior and pattern and choices. Is there a different message for family court? You know, you know, there's so much overlap in, and I think what you're saying, but is there, is there, is there for professionals working in family court, is there another takeaway from your research for them? Um, don't assume that domestic violence has nothing to do with the child. If the, if the perpetrator is a coercive controller, they will have harmed so many aspects of the child's life. You know, as as you say, it's a parenting choice. You know, if you stop the child's mother from going out after four o'clock, if you stop her from from leaving the house except to go to the supermarket for 15 minutes, that is going to severely isolate your children. And if you don't care about that, that says a great deal about you as a parent and what you do and don't care about and how little you prioritize your children. So it is a parenting choice. It has everything to do with parenting if that perpetrator is a coercive controller. Um, And I think separation does not equal safety. If the perpetrator is in family court, it almost certainly means that they're carrying on their campaign of coercive control. Where is the evidence they have stopped being a coercive controller? Where is the evidence that they no longer have this intense drive to control this other person that has dominated their life for probably the last you know, three, five, eight, ten years? Where's the evidence that that has disappeared? Why would it have disappeared? It probably has not disappeared. Why are they in that court? They will say it's because they love their child or they're worried about their child. But do they really have any empathy for their child? Can they really describe what their child is like as a character in a way that isn't just a reflection of them and their wishful thinking? Can they name their child's five best friends? Can they describe the things that their child doesn't like? Can they give an example of when their child disobeyed them and when that was actually a good thing and taught them something? You know, can they describe an example of where their child challenged them and they learned and they grew from that and they, you know, they they gave their child more freedom as a result of that challenge, not less? Look at their parenting. That's a great, those are great bits, Emma. That that is great. Those are great. Um, And since we have survivors and professionals listening, what do you want to say to each group? about coercive control and its impacts on children? Well, for survivors, I would say that I know that when 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 parents, survivors really start to realize how how fully it, it did affect their child's life, they can feel overwhelmingly guilty about it. I would say it was not your fault. You never chose to bring up your child in those circumstances. You were thoroughly entrapped by the perpetrator who had you entrapped in like five or ten different ways probably um and you it's you know if if you're listening to this you probably did everything that you could to look after your child as best as you could in those circumstances and you probably were a better parent in those circumstances than than a lot of other people ever could be because it's like asking you to parent in a condition of 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 a nightmare and um, we we never we can't imagine what it's like to try and parent in the, in this sort of nightmarish scenario. Um, so I would say you did your best. 
and you should be very proud of what you did and in any little way that you managed to give your child a better day make them happy make them smile from time to time um protect them from something or you know make them feel good about themselves occasionally any little victory that you had there you did so well and I would say that if I was if I was the prime minister or the president, then I would be giving each survivor a million pounds in compensation and a medal for surviving a war because that's what they deserve. I would agree. And that, that's, a, that's a great <laughs> message to, to professionals, policymakers, politicians, and, and everyone. So I, I just um, was really looking forward to this interview and uh, it didn't, it, it, it lived up, lived up to an exceeded expectations. And I think it's going to be really important one yeah. for our listeners you know, because course of control is on everybody's mind. And I think kids and family courts on everybody's mind. So we really want to thank you uh, yeah. for spending your time with us today, Emma. Thank you so much, Emma. So oh, it was a pleasure. Um, and can I just add before before anyone accuses me of being a man hater, which does occasionally happen because I have said the perpetrators are usually dads um, or, or the man in, in the relationship, which is the case. I just want to say absolutely not, not a man hater. I think that some men are the most brilliant, fantastic fathers and husbands and wonderful human beings. And the fact that we do set such a low bar that we think that this behavior from male perpetrators is normal. I think that is the thing that is offensive to men. The idea that we ever excuse male violence as boys being boys or they couldn't Mm. help it or it was natural. I think that is so offensive to men. And I think saying that men can be respectful, kind, generous partners and that if they're not being then that needs to be challenged because it, it can be so much better than that. And we need to do better than that. I think, I think that is a good thing. Um, but also just again, to say that sometimes women can be perpetrators. And if anyone's listening out there who has been the victim of a female perpetrator, I hear you. Yes. And I would, I would, I would totally back that up and also say that us dealing with the behaviors and looking at patterns of behaviors and mapping those actually helps us to clarify when women are perpetrators and when yes. men are being abused. And so in the best interest of being able to properly identify people, doing that consistently, doing that well, and looking at both parents' patterns of behaviors creates mm. a lot of clarity and allows for us to avoid those counter allegations, which caused a tremendous amount of confusion in family court and in child protection. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, well, again, Emma, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And and Ruth and I um, are are uh, encouraging folks who are listening to share this episode and all our other episodes, which we have more and more. Um, we hit the fifty thousand download mark in we the did. last month, which we is did. which is super cool. Yeah. <laughs> And um, so please share, subscribe, um, join us in a platform. And then we have a discount that you we do. We do. I made, a, I made a 15% discount for any of our courses that's on our virtual academy, which is academy.safeandtogetherinstitute.com. And it's partnered, all lowercase. So if you want to do some training and you want a little discount, please use that discount. And check out our website, safetogetherinstitute.com and follow us on the usual social media suspects, you yes. know, LinkedIn yes. and yes. Facebook and Twitter. And, uh, and I created a, a, my own Twitter feed recently. Did. I did. so. And Dr. Emma Katz is also on Twitter. Twitter right? Please follow her. And, and I out. am. I'm pretty active on Twitter. So if you want to hear more from me, follow me on Twitter, Dr. Emma Katz, Dr. D-R Emma Katz. Katz is spelled K-A-T-Z. 
Yep. Right. And keep a keep an eye out for her book, which will be coming in, we hope, fingers crossed, in, in six to eight months. There we go. Yep. There we go. So anyway, so again, uh, Emma, thank you. And, and we're, we're out. out.